This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Astronomy Cast, episode 669, Challenges to Dark Energy. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, the publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I, I am doing well. The third episode of our new TV show aired Saturday. And we got it to the station 90 minutes before it was due, due to computer crashes, because computers know. But mm-hmm. yeah. if, if you haven't checked it out yet, it's Escape Velocity Space News. It airs on Now Media. And I'm going to be putting together a podcast version and loading that up later today. Congratulations. That's amazing. It's been over 20 years since astronomers first discovered that the expansion of the universe is accelerating thanks to dark energy. And in these decades, astronomers still don't have much evidence for what could be causing the increased expansion rate. Maybe there's something else going on to explain it. If you go back into the archive of Astronomy Cast shows, one of the first episodes that we did was dark matter, and then after that was dark energy. I think, like, within the teens, anyway. And we've brought it up a couple of times since then, but I had been expecting in the 15 years that we've been doing this show that we would have something more to say on the matter. But to be honest, not much has been figured out apart from some really interesting new surveys like the Dark Energy Survey Telescope, the development and eventual launch of the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope. We still have no idea what this is. What, one of the things that actually caught me by surprise is I, I was expecting to spend today talking about the new results from the Dark Energy Survey and the South Pole Telescope. Mm-hmm. And there are actually two really cool papers that have both come out in FizRev letters in, in the past couple of months that are both clearly the, hi, we're theorists, we have predictions, there are only two of us on this paper, please give us the Nobel Prize when our predictions prove true. Right. Um, and, and so we may be getting to the point that theorists are starting to figure out how to get a handle on things, and they're finding answers that may also help confine dark matter, which is kind of cool. 
Oh, that's great. So then I guess, what is the evidence for dark energy? Basically, it comes down to when you measure the distance to a supernova and you measure the rate at which that galaxy is moving away from us using Doppler shifts, we find that the universe is actually accelerating over time, which is not something that was in anyone's predictions, but it was in the math in the form of a constant to the equations of state for the universe. When Einstein originally came up with these equations, there was an integration factor. When you integrate, you have to add a constant. And he assumed that the constant would have a value that caused the universe to be static. Hmm. A few years later, Hubble came along, found the universe is expanding. Now we have a constant that makes sense for that. But it turns out that if you have a universe that is accelerating apart, that is is a, a value for the equations of state. And, and so now what we're finding is, in order to explain the geometry of our universe, which is flat, 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 very flat, and an accelerating universe, you have to have 70% of the universe made of something that isn't observable matter, that's about 4.5% of the universe, that isn't dark matter that gets observed through gravitational lensing, gets observed through rotation curves of galaxies, gets observed through the motions of galaxies and clusters, that's 27-ish percent. In Instead, you have dark energy. So this measurement really relies on how good the measurements to those type 1a supernovae are. Yes. And it also comes down to once we realized, okay, so we have from the Planck uh, Observatory the, the flat geometry, and then you combine it with everything else, and you look at the mass density of the universe. The only way to explain the mass density of the universe is to have this extra stuff as well. So you can get to dark energy from a couple of different ways, but to get at the value that we're seeing, yes, that came very clearly from the 1998 observations that the universe is accelerating with time in its expansion. And we did some coverage on a new database that came out a couple of months ago where astronomers had gone through and like recalibrated, normalized all the data for about a thousand total type 1a supernova measurements. And if anything, have gotten even more accurate. Like yeah. You, you overlap the Cepheid variables with the type 1a supernovae. This distance ladder is beautiful. The error bars are ever shrinking. And the amount of dark energy in the universe is, you know, zeroing in on this. They're really nailing this number. And one of the wild things about this is we keep trying to find an excuse that maybe further back in the universe, these kinds of supernovas, due to the change in the chemistry, would have different properties. And we do keep observationally finding random exceptions. There was a super cool type 1a supernova that went off 
while inside of another star, which is one way to blow up a white dwarf. You can imagine that would pollute the results a little bit. Right. But these one-offs that we're finding are super cool, but they are one-offs. The vast majority of the Type 1A supernovae are just boring white dwarfs that ate more than they could hold without changing states. Right. And so I guess one possibility is that the Type 1A supernovae aren't the standard candles that astronomers had always believed, but the evidence is continuing to build that, yes, indeed, they are. Except yeah. for the ones where they were one star blows up from inside another star. Yeah. And, right. and so, I mean, it's just like saying most human adults are between five foot and six foot. Yes, there are people who are only three foot and there are people who are only seven foot. Um, but the vast majority of us are between five and six foot. So, yeah, it's hmm. averages. So then let's talk about some of the large-scale surveys that have been developed to try to get to the heart of dark energy. Not necessarily explain it, I guess, but at least to confirm it, map it, try and nail down its parameters. So the big one with the obvious name is the Dark Energy Survey, which was done uh, from down in Chile, where they observed with extreme sensitivity, vast swaths of the sky with the goal of looking to see how the structure of the universe evolved with time. So the idea here is we know that the universe started out as pretty much smooth distribution of particles. It wasn't even anything more fancy than particles initially, with slight over and under densities that were created by sound waves moving through the early universe. That mostly smooth distribution that we can measure in the cosmic microwave background then had to collapse down into galaxies, stars at the smallest scales, but then clusters of galaxies, walls of galaxies, superclusters mm. at the largest scale. And it does that over time. And we have models that basically say, okay, here is the CMB, here is the modern universe, let's fill in in between. And the Dark Energy Survey was designed to get at in the more recent few billion years. The next survey that is super exciting to look at is HERA, which is being done in the radio, looking at the redshifted 20-centimeter line of cold hydrogen. That that The detectors for this, they're looking at wavelengths of light that instead of being just 20 centimeters, are instead many, many feet, so Mm. longer than us. And in these longer wavelengths, we're able to start seeing how cold hydrogen was distributed in the early universe, start piecing together how cold gas clumped and then got reionized in the era of reionization. And and between these different surveys, we're working our way through measuring what was the structure over time so that we can better confine our models and say, okay, was the amount of dark energy constant over time? Was there some sort of a phase transition? Was there a kick somewhere? And these are the kinds of questions that folks are trying to answer is, 
what observables can dark energy give us that will help us confine our theories? And so in addition to the Type 1a supernova measurements, they're able to now look at these galaxy clusters, and then on top of that, they're looking at the concentrations of these regions of hydrogen gas. And so you've got like three independent lines of observation that theoretically should allow you to map out the amount of dark energy. And yes. Is the assumption that they're going to find it? Like, like I know the Dark Energy Survey is still partway through its survey. Uh, you didn't even mention the Nancy Grace Roman. It's going to be launching in 2025. Right. You don't and count your satellites until they're orbiting. No, fine, fine. Okay. <laughs> Pamela, you know, put your hands over your ears. Audience, the Nancy Grace Roman, one of its main jobs is going to be to ca- characterize dark energy, doing kind of the same thing that the Dark Energy Survey is, but from space. So we are going to have... Like, like this is oh, this is classic, right? Like, if you don't have an easy answer, then you build more instruments, more observatories, and you keep trying to characterize the nature of the problem. Yeah. Building hypotheses, testing them against your observations, removing bad ideas one after yeah. the other, and hopefully trying to pin down the final thing. So we may we may never know what's causing dark energy, but we'll have it measured to six sigma accuracy. Well, and the other side of it is the particle physics side. So we know that that dark energy, whether it's a force, an energy, a field theory, whatever it is, puts into every cubic meter of space basically a proton-ish worth of energy. And, And so how do you explain that energy existing? And by better understanding the quantum mechanic side of the universe, the particle physics, the vacuum energy, are stereoneutrinos actually a thing or not? This is another way of, of coming at the fullness of the universe by looking at the smallest factors inside of it. All right. So I guess... You found a few papers that have been proposing some alternative explanations that would explain the observations, but not necessarily be new energy that's being injected into every cubic meter of the universe, which I guess sounds satisfying. Like the fact that energy <laughs> is appearing out of nowhere, that's unnerving. So w- what are what are they proposing? So, so the first paper in here, I have to look at my notes. Um, the, the first paper came out from Martin Sloth and Florian Niedermann, uh, where they're looking at new early dark energy. And the idea here is our universe has undergone phase transitions in terms of the energy of the entire universe. So the first massive phase change occurred in the first fractions of a second where we essentially went from every basically molecule-sized bit of the universe expanding out via inflation, which we also don't know what is, uh, to be about the size of the observable universe, uh, according to some ways of looking at it. And, And this massive, fairly instantaneous epic of inflation may have only been one of two 
phase transitions, where there could have been a later phase transition that if their testable uh, ideas are right, leads through first principles to having a cosmological constant of 72, which is within error bars of what we see for the modern universe, and fixes the discrepancy we see with the old universe. And so, sorry, so like, like the idea of inflation yes. happening in just the first fraction of the Big Bang was developed, I think, back in the 70s yeah. to help explain a lot of the problems with big the Big Bang. Like the Big Bang beautifully yes. explains the universe as we see it today, but there are these flaws in the theory. How can vastly separated parts of the universe be similar temperature? Uh, there's a bunch of these ideas. And so the, one of the theories is that, in fact, there was this period of rapid inflation that that carried everything away from each other really quickly, and then it settled down. So I think baked into modern cosmology is already this idea, as you say, a phase change, a dramatic change in the expansion rate of the universe. So it, it doesn't seem that surprising that there right. could then have been others later on. So when would have this other, you know, they're calling it what, early what are they calling it? Early they're, they're calling it dark new energy? early dark energy. So right. N-E-D-E okay. is the abbreviation. New early dark energy. Right. And so when would this have occurred in the timeline of the universe? This this still would have occurred during what, what they refer to as the dark times prior to the release of the cosmic microwave background. And... And it fits in with the way Michael Turner, who's who's a prominent cosmologist, now professor emeritus from the University of Chicago, he says there's basically these three unknown pillars of cosmology, inflation, dark energy, which he actually named, dark matter. Um, and, and so this looks at that, that early period, makes some solid predictions for temperature uh, details that we should be able to see with enhanced uh, continuing to look at the cosmic microwave background, which tells us everything apparently. But it also makes some finite predictions for what uh, kinds of neutrinos should be out there. And what kinds of specific particles we can expect to find, thus also perhaps explaining dark matter. So we have one coherent theory spelled out in a letter-sized research article making concrete predictions. It seems good and just needs tested now, but Mm -hmm. it's not the only one out there. All right, we'll talk about the other one then. So so the other one is by Alexander, and I'm going to mispronounce this, and I'm sorry this appears to be a Ukrainian last name, Dukachnenko. And the other one is Dmitry Fedorov. And they look at the vacuum energy of the universe. And vacuum energy is something we know is real because of the Casimir effect, which is just one of the best named effects in in particle physics. The dude's name was Casimir, but it just sounds cool to say. And what the Casimir effect says is if you take two plates that are capable of conducting electrons, 
and you put them extremely close together, but you're not actually running charge through them and they're not being exposed to any fields, nothing should happen in a vacuum. But the reality is if you put these two plates just a couple nanometers apart within a vacuum, they will either attract or repel due to the constant creation and destruction of virtual particles that are in their creation and destruction uh, creating a field. So if you have a proton spring into existence as a virtual particle between these two plates, that proton has a field and it creates the effect. Right. And we see this. Right. And now, if, if I understand like the Casimir effect, like because the gap is so small, the virtual particles of only certain sizes can pop into existence outside right. or as a field outside the, the plates. And then they are pushing inward. There's essentially a field on the outside and not so much field on the inside. And it's pushing on these plates. And once you move the plates farther and farther apart, now it there's room away. for the fields to appear both in between the, the yeah. plates and outside the plates. And then that, that force goes away. And it sort of shows you the presence of this vacuum energy that is everywhere. And it's, you know, it's been beautifully measured. So no one, no one argues with the existence of vacuum energy. The assumption, though, is that the vacuum cancel that this energy cancels out, goes away very quickly, and doesn't provide any ongoing force to the universe. And and that was that's that's one school of thought. Another school of thought is no, it's totally providing dark energy like forces. But when they do all the maths, they have consistently come up with a amount that is too large by a factor of 10 to the 120 for the theories that I like the best and that are among the prominent theories. And, and the best case for getting it down has, until this paper, as far as I know, been 10 to the 30th. And when you're off by somewhere between 10 to the 30 and 10 to the 120, <laughs> it really doesn't it's matter. Lot. It's yeah. a lot. And, and this is where uh, these two researchers, uh, Tkachenko and Fedorov, they said, well, okay, what if the vacuum energy has a polarizability, that the particles can actually have alignments that affect what can and can't come into existence and annihilate and they make, again, solid predictions that should be testable if we go looking with new technology that we don't currently have laying around. And, and it's just one of those nice, simple, elegant ideas of we know stuff can be polarized. We know particles can be aligned. What if just the universe as a whole has this polarizability characteristic to it that we just hadn't been including. And and again, with this research, it makes set predictions on what to go look for. It looks at the particles that are out there and says, okay, here's what to see in particle physics. And I don't know which team I'm rooting for more. Um, I like the polarizability one. Well, I mean, that's like 
I, it's two theory papers making predictions. Both of them have only two authors. Both papers are clearly gearing up for a Nobel Prize. It's always good to cheer for people, right. but I guess I'll cheer for both. Yeah. And so both, I mean, this is, when you think about the, the winning Nobel Prizes, yeah. many of them start this way. Yes. That a theorist puts together a paper and says, there should be a particle called the Higgs boson, right? And then 30 years later, experimenters are finally able to find it. And this is the same thing. So, I mean, I guess if, like, if, if dark energy makes you uncomfortable already, <laughs> this does buckle not. up. Yeah. yeah. This is, you know, you still got another 30 to 50 years of searching and scanning and trying theories to try and narrow in on an answer to it. And, and if you want to get a feel for what it's like within the field of particle physics, to watch people so clearly chasing Nobel Prizes. Watch the movie Particle Fever. It is very delightful. Um, Shows the good, the bad, and the ugly of scientists being scientists and um, just the joy that comes from people getting to see their dreams come true through instrumentation. I will check that out. It's really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Pamela. I, I hope we, within the lifetime of Astronomy Cast, we will do the show. We finally know what dark energy is. After we do the fu- show where we say we finally know what dark matter is, we will do both those shows. This is my promise to all of you. And and this is where it's it's just sort of like we can hope. And um, when that finally happens, is that when we retire? No, because okay. no, there'll be a hundred new mysteries that are even. Die. Yeah, yeah, there'll be a hundred new mysteries that are even more complicated and more troubling. So, no, that's how this whole process works. All right, Pamela, thanks a lot. Thank you, and thank you to all the patrons out there. I don't actually have a thing of names I just discovered uh, to pull out because it's the very beginning of the month and the list hasn't been generated yet. But I do want to say. Thank you to all of you. We've been reading uh, the names of just a subset of you on air. It's one of the perks associated with the different levels. But we love all of you, whether you're a $1 a month contributor or a $100 a month contributor. You allow us, through your ongoing efforts year after year, to allow us to pay our humans and keep this show going and um, occasionally replace cables for my camera when they die. So thank you. I will take this opportunity then to sort of mention a trend, a disturbing trend that you who are a fan of educational content should be aware of. And that is artificial intelligence generated content that more and more websites are moving to this model of getting chat GPT and other artificial intelligence to generate on mass the material. And this mm-hmm. trend is going to accelerate yeah. and it's just another career that is going to be go away, go away, sunsetted the, the, the career of the science communicator. And that's because it's way cheaper to, to let a, let a, a large language model generate explainer content. And hopefully, you know, Pamela and I have value in place yeah. in this society as more and more of this content shifts into being generated by enormous databases. I know it sounds shocking and surprising, but, but 
this is where it's all going to go and it's going to happen startlingly fast. So we, we've had people write in and say, Hey, why don't you switch over to using chat GPT to generate right. your scripts? It's already, yeah. people are suggesting I, it. Yeah. Yeah. We won't do that. Yeah. I will get chat GPT to recommend ideas, but I won't. <laughs> here's the, here's the key. There are no scripts. That's the trick. Right. Right. So how, how could we have a script if there are no scripts? Smart. Anyway, so if, uh, you know, if the work that we're doing, like if, if the loss of science communicators at the mainstream media was already troubling to you, now they're coming for all the science communicators. So if, if, yeah. if supporting the work that we do is important to you to make sure that we can keep, keep doing the show, paying the people on the team, keeping the servers running, all of that, join our Patreon. Thank you. Patreon.com slash AstronomyCast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Astronomy Cast is a joint product of Universe Today and the Planetary Science Institute. Astronomy Cast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. So love it, share it, and remix it. But please credit it to our hosts, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can get more information on today's show topic on our website, astronomycast.com. This episode was brought to you thanks to our generous patrons on Patreon. If you want to help keep this show going, please consider joining our community at patreon.com slash astronomycast. Not only do you help us pay our producers a fair wage, you will also get special access to content right in your inbox and invites to online events. We are so grateful to all of you who have joined our Patreon community already. Anyways, keep looking up. This has been Astronomy Cast.